Today's episode marks a change in direction because from here on in, we are going to start discussing the evidence in this case. But before we do that, it's worth having an overview of the defence's case both at the time and now. At the time of the trial, Jeremy Bamber's defence was actually pretty simple. Sheila did it. And his barrister argued that much of the alleged evidence of guilt could be entirely explained. The blood in the moderator was suspect. Sheila's gun use could be implied. But to them, there was no doubt she knew what she was doing. The lack of blood on her person was due to a process called ritual cleansing. There was a reasoning and a rationale for all of it. But in the years since, the case has become much more complex and confusing. There was, of course, only one group of people to whom I could turn for this kind of information. The campaign team, or the Jeremy Bamber innocence team, as they tend to be known on social media. They were the group that had undoubtedly been the source of my previous understanding of the case. And it was their information that had previously galvanised my attention. And so... When they replied to my email agreeing to an interview, I knew that they, like their website and social channels, were going to be an excellent source of information. The aim of today's episode is to discuss the core concerns that the campaign team have with Jeremy's conviction and to lay the foundations for later discussions over the contentious issues. Before we go any further, there's a few things that need to be pointed out. When I recorded this interview with them, a very long time ago, I was a huge supporter of Jeremy Bamber's campaign and sincerely believed in his innocence. But I now see this interview as something completely different. I went back and forth on how to use this audio for months, years even, because now I believe in his guilt. It takes on a whole different meaning. That said, the campaign team are the loudest, most dedicated and most outspoken innocence campaign within the United Kingdom. But they also represent a strand of Jeremy's defence. And to that end, it's important that they also have their say. Even if I might now disagree with them, what they have to say is invaluable and deserves to be heard. Having spoken to a media solicitor, I've been reassured that having previously obtained permission to use this audio, which was approved upon them having received transcripts of this discussion, there are legal grounds for me to continue with its use. It's safe for me to assume that I will hear from them if they disagree with this, as they have reached out to me once before. It's also worth noting that I have edited the audio slightly, just to allow it to follow a better course and conversation, and to remove some of the needless ums and ahs and pauses, This was requested by the campaign team after the interview was first conducted. This interview was undertaken a fairly long time ago, like I said, and so it is possible that certain aspects of their narrative have since been changed. To that end, I would suggest that you follow them on their own social media platforms or visit their website, listen to their podcast for more up-to-date information. So what follows is an edited and rearranged version of the interview with myself and the Jeremy Bamber Innocence Campaign, with commentary inserted to add context. I've tried to keep that to a minimum to ensure that what they say is accurately reflected. I also want to take a second to thank them for participating in this interview with me. In the weeks and even months after the interview took place, they were huge help to my investigation, answering my questions and providing me with further information whenever I needed it. And I owe them a huge thanks for that 
and the interview itself. And fortunately, since the initial interview with them, my opinion on the case has shifted and I've lost communication with the campaign team. It must have become clear how I was now starting to feel about this case. And while the initial transcript of the interview was agreed, there has been no communication since. Thankfully, they did approve the transcript at the time, agreeing I could use the information included and that there was nothing prejudicial towards Jeremy's case. After all, the nature of this case is that it's still active on the defence side. And with Jeremy Bamba's recent CCRC submission, I understand that there's a need for the campaign to be careful in all communication that it distributes. With their previous reassurances that this episode did not affect the CCRC submission, what follows is a discussion over the Jeremy Bamber Innocence Campaign's version of events. Right, enough waffling. Let's get straight into today's episode. Jeremy's is the most hardworking person I know. He never stops. He's absolutely will work tirelessly day and night to prove his innocence. He's supportive of us because we get a lot of negative press. We get a lot of, we've had one today, even a very negative, horrible email of somebody, you know, <laughs> very abusive. But it's like, but he's very supportive of us. Uh, in you know the work we do to, to get the evidence of his innocence out and you know we work directly with his legal team which is appreciative of um it's just absolutely resilient it bounces back and back and back from all these pushbacks and rejections and you know like the le- recent jr you know we were absolutely mortified we were devastated as a campaign we know what we've given them the evidence of two silences, the evidence that Jeremy was innocent and they didn't look at it. So we asked for the disclosure and we were all absolutely, I was heartbroken, I was in floods of tears and Jeremy just said, it's fine, we'll get up, we move on and we'll use that for the next stage. And so he's so absolutely determined, he's so calm. You know, we just get frustrated at the length of time things take, but he's absolutely determined as we are to prove that he's innocent and we will. We have the evidence. We absolutely have the evidence. So, yeah, but, you know, it's kind, it's supportive of people. It helps people in prison, helps them to learn to read and write so they can answer letters to loved ones and do an, have an education and fight their own cases. And without him helping them to do that, you know, they, they would really struggle. So... You know, he's, he's very calm, he's very, never causes trouble. You know what I mean? He's, he's what you call a model prisoner. And I mean, the, the number of hours that we and he spend together working on the case, and yet he still finds that time to, because he just get a lot of mail, and he still finds that time to, he makes sure every single person that writes to him receives a response. You know, he doesn't leave it on the side of anything, no matter how busy he is or, what issues are going on at that time, he makes sure that because it's the support he gets is phenomenal. But as a, as a person, he's also good company. He's, you know, he's got a good sense of humour. 
It is just the normal person who, to whom a terrible misfortune has befallen. And I think the thing that keeps him going, as Yvonne says, is that he knows that he's innocent. You know, we, we can surmise and we've seen all the evidence and we believe he's innocent, but he knows that he's innocent. And that's, I think, his inner strength to cope with what, what has been a terrible ordeal. For many, these words are jarring, shocking, and even unthinkable. But for those who spoke them, they're nothing but an utterance of the truth. As those interviewed in today's episode believe, without any shred of a doubt, that they know Jeremy Bamba best. And for them, unlike most of the population, Jeremy is as far from the presented monster as he could possibly be. And yet, these are not the traditional killer groupies that tend to swarm the most notorious serial killer cases. And nor are they the family of the convicted either. In fact, most of them have never even met the man himself, communicating via phone calls and letters. And while many will disagree with what the campaign team have to say, none could doubt the sincerity with which they say it. In today's episode, you're going to hear from Philip and Yvonne, two of those who work on the Jeremy Bamba Innocence Campaign, an impassioned and controversial organisation that is determined to fight for what they see as justice. The first thing people tend to say when you say, oh, Jeremy's innocent, their first question is, well, how come he was convicted then? Because of that intrinsic faith in the system that they just cannot think, well, occasionally there are miscarriages of justice. But, but you can demonstrate there are miscarriages of justice because I don't know how many appeals there are against serious crimes every year, many thousands. Some of those appeals are successful, some are not. But where they are successful, by definition, that means one of the decisions, either the original conviction or the appeal, is wrong. So if people think about it, they can see that sometimes the system doesn't work. And uh, regrettably, this is probably the most egregious example of it. Personally, I think a lot, a lot of the problem is because people don't want to believe that the British system can be so corrupt that even when you produce the evidence that somebody's innocence, they still maintain that conviction because they can't admit to the mistakes that they made and to the facts that show somebody is innocent. And, you know, we completely think Jeremy's become a political prisoner. He was given a whole life tariff. Um, Jeremy will argue with you that he's not a whole life tariff. Um, and we have evidence about that as well. But... You know, it's just how would it how would the, it work for the whole of the country for a whole lifetime if prisoner has been in jail for 35 years? Then them saying, oh, he's innocent, we need to let him out. So this is why the bar for Jeremy is so incredibly high and much higher than, you know, you've got other miscarriage of justice cases, you know, like the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six and, and people like that. And it's off a single piece of evidence or a missing witness statement or something like that. And yet Jeremy's case, we have so much compelling evidence. We can undermine the entire prosecution case. And yet it's a fight. It's a fight all the time to get them to listen to that evidence, to acknowledge that evidence, and then to actually say, right, what are you going to do to rectify this? Because unlike most of the public, they believe entirely in Jeremy's innocence convinced that he is the victim of a tragedy beyond compare. 
What convinced them of his innocence is personal and likely different for each individual involved with the campaign. But one thing was consistent with a number of people with whom I've had discussions, and that was the fact that Jeremy has continuously refused to admit guilt, even when it was to the detriment of his personal situation. It's not just a matter of persistence, because when he, he was originally jailed, if he'd, if he'd admitted guilt, there was a strong chance at that point that he would have got out earlier. That, that did change later on, but there was an incentive for him to admit his guilt, and he still didn't, which is even more compelling. Let's start with a very brief introduction of those two individuals, Philip and Yvonne, in their own words, telling you how they got into the case and what it is that they do on the campaign. So for me, it was about 11 years ago nearly now. Um, I watched a programme about Jeremy and I thought this just isn't right. So I did as much research. There wasn't a lot available at that time. There was a few books. There was... Um, things on the internet. I mean, the website wasn't as substantive as it is now. But from what I read, I thought, well, no, this isn't. And I had a burning, my burning issue was the scratch marks. So I wrote to Jeremy this very complex letter about my opinion of the scratch marks on the Arga. And he replied to me. And from there, we sort of, he was like, we'll have a look at this. And well, what do you think of that? And so we worked, gradually worked through so for the past, I think, about five, six years now, um, I've been heavily involved with the campaign because I was just working with Jeremy on his own. And then so I got asked to join the campaign. So I'm now forensic liaison manager for the campaign and joint admin. So when we need a forensic report, I have a team of scientists who I can approach and say, can you possibly do me a report on this? How much will it cost? When can you have it ready for um, you know, and establishing good relationships with with people like that, as well as, you know, trying to run the campaign to the point where we can get that interest. We need people to know. We need as many people as possible to know of Jeremy's innocence. So, yeah. So, and the recent, in the last few years, I've worked along with Jeremy and with the legal team who are quite happy to talk to me as well. So it's like I'm a Camille a middle person between them as well. So and that works really well, you know, when we're preparing submissions and everything. So best job in the world, especially when you found evidence like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, so my, my involvement follows a pretty similar path, to be honest. I, mean, I remember years ago reading the Roger Wilkes book back in the 90s, which put a question mark over the whole prosecution case. And I recall thinking at the time there's something a bit dodgy about all this, but I didn't particularly follow it after that. But about four years ago, I read, I can't remember the exact nature of the article, but I read something that, again, questioned one aspect of the, of the case. So I, again, like Yvonne, did a bit more reading uh, and, in fact, read Caroline Lee's, in quotes, definitive account of the book, uh, of the case, rather, and uh, decided that I didn't quite come to the same conclusion that she did. And then just wrote to Jeremy and offered to help if I could, and uh, it went from there. Yeah, well, yes, yeah, so, yeah. In, in terms of what I do, I sort of run the communication side of things and uh, help out uh, on the forensic side occasionally when required. So, yes, there's a, a lot to keep us busy. For those who've given everything to the cause, the release of Jeremy Bamber, he's nothing more than a victim. And as they protested to me, 
For those who've given all but their life for the cause, the release of Jeremy Bamber, he's nothing more than a victim. So convinced are they in their evidence and interpretation of the case that they told me that even if Jeremy turned around one day and admitted guilt, they'd still have doubts over his conviction. Over the course of their personal involvement, Philip and Yvonne have climbed the ranks of the organisation, working hard and contributing greatly to what they believe in. From fundraising to networking, they've done it all. Some of you might have even met them at the very first CrimeCon UK event. I personally spotted the pair walking around. They were networking and I know of at least five experts who were approached by them. Much in the same way that others amongst us have campaigned for our own passions, for me, my want to change things was expressed through a particular political party, but for them, it's overturning Jeremy Bamber's conviction. Over the course of their history with the case, they have worked on numerous aspects of his court cases and have accessed thousands of the documents as part of this process. As a result, it could be argued that they potentially know more about this case than anyone else. And so having spent hours reading through their website, I knew that they were a key resource. While the American justice system seems to be dominated by notable and famed innocence campaigns, it's a trend that is mostly absent from the UK system. And while there are some obvious examples of cases that tend to raise questions, there aren't many as notorious as this. In fact, off the top of my head, I can only really name two other examples of cases where advocates have continued to laud it a miscarriage. Those who support Luke Mitchell in Scotland and those who supported the late Di Morris here in Wales. But I can't name you any other case where a campaign group seems to have the prevalence as that of Jeremy Bambers. The campaign has been around for years, with those involved and fronting it changing over the duration of its existence. And while their tactics are sometimes seen as questionable and provocative, their research is thorough and their social media strategy is consistent and constant. There's a tendency to other those who would choose to be involved in such a campaign. And for various reasons, the Jeremy Bamber Innocence Campaign has not been free from criticism. And while it's fine to doubt their message or disagree with them on what they believe, there's one important point that I want to make from the outset. During my many emails and the one recorded conversation with the campaign team, not once did I doubt their sincerity. And those I spoke to were involved because they are truly impassioned and engaged with the case. They believe in their cause and what they are fighting for. There's undoubtedly a passionate belief within the support they have for Jeremy Bamber, and they outright believe in his innocence. There are no ulterior motives, and it's important to remember that they are doing what they do because they believe in his innocence. They are loyal and determined, and they find themselves at the forefront of the campaign because of that sense of duty that they feel. They believe that there's been a miscarriage of justice, and feeling that sense of devastation, they fight for what they believe. And that is, quite simply, that Sheila Caffell was the cause of this tragedy, and that Jeremy Bamber is innocent. The case itself, as we always say, it's, it's the police that have made it complicated. This is the first of several comments about which I now disagree. As to my mind, there really is only one cause of confusion in this case, and that is the campaign team. They continuously change their narrative with layer after layer 
being added to the story. At the heart of it, their version of events is really as simple as previously mentioned. But it's the innumerable details that have been added to the story that makes it what it is now, a tangled web of questions. That Sheila was alive while the police were there. That one of the twins was shot an extra time. That Neville was never really injured upstairs. That the blood in the moderator could be animal. What results is a situation where nothing seems straightforward. And herein lies the issue with the Bamba campaign. Because every few weeks, a new theory emerges. A new strand of supposed evidence is alleged. And the result is an unnecessarily complicated and difficult to follow narrative. A narrative that becomes far-fetched and cloudy, with a conspiracy far outstripping the issue that lays at its heart, with even supporters of Bamba confiding in me that they doubt much of what the campaign team puts out. The issue here lies with the supposed evidence of Bamba's guilt, and the campaign team's sense that they have to counteract all of it. And so... What emerges is a complex and hard to rationalise version of events. If Jeremy is innocent, then that alone should be more than enough. But the conflated and now complicated protestations of innocence only serve to make the case increasingly far-fetched. Which begs the question, why? For every aspect of the now suggested stories, there's a huge conspiracy that has to have fallen alongside it meaning that there has to be tens upon tens of people involved in the cover-up. And again, that begs the question, why? After all, Jeremy Bamba was nothing special. He had no public profile and there was no reason for him to have been fit up. And after all, from day dot, the police stated it was Sheila. Hardly an ideal start for a conspiracy. And so I ask, which is the most likely? That the police mistakenly believed it was Sheila initially, then came to realise it was Bamba, or that the police publicly stated it was Sheila, only to decide for reasons unknown that they wanted it to be Jeremy Bamba who was put away. And so I'm left to wonder, is this a situation in which Oxum's razor should apply? Meaning that the simplest, less convoluted reasoning is probably the accurate version. Perhaps the reason the campaign's case seems now detached from reality is the simple truth that in order to prove innocence, they have to explain away every piece of evidence and what results is a far-fetched story. But back to the interview. And one of the huge issues with this case is the suggestion that new evidence is constantly being uncovered, when to me, it appears to be little more than new interpretations of what already existed. And you'd think at this stage, people would say, well, 35 years, you're still finding evidence. That's ridiculous. But um, we got disclosed a huge amount of material in 2011. And we've had to systematically go through that material. And you might read a document six months ago that you think, oh, interesting, but nothing I can really go with that at the moment. And then yesterday, that what you've read six months ago suddenly fills that gap. And you think, ah, so that's what happened. And it's the missing piece. So, And that happens so many times. But it only happens by keep reviewing the evidence, reviewing it, reviewing it, reviewing it, going over it, reading it again, cross-referencing other paperwork. And, you know, that's how we get it. We have masses. I can send you a photograph of the amount of documents we've got. Um, there's absolutely masses of it so I think there's 
there must be we have a material given to us off um former um legal representatives of Germans and, and that and so I think now in total we're getting close to about half a million documents but we know there are four million so there's still a lot of material that isn't disclosed we know what it is because it's referenced in other material but they won't give it us they won't let us have it thing you've got to remember, Kay, is it's not just the original prosecution case. There have been two other full inquiries into it. The, the City of London Police in 1991 and the Stoke and Church inquiry by the Met Police in 2002-2001-2002. So those were huge inquiries in themselves and it's cross in some cases cross-referencing all the material to see discrepancies where people, in fact, some of the evidence we were talking about earlier today is where people have changed their accounts between the original prosecution statements and late statements they later gave to the other inquiries that have shown up the, the holes in the prosecution case. When I first started this series, it was because I was unable to find an outlet that seems to fairly and equally consider both sides of the Bamba case. The campaign team often feels as if things are unduly biased against them. With a point being made about a documentary that had, at the time of the interview, recently featured on Channel 4. I mean, as well, just to emphasise how biased things are, there was a Channel 5 programme on uh, last week, on the Wednesday evening, and they're not repeating it. And they're not putting it on the on the uh, catch up channel, you know. So it's like you've one chance of seeing that, and that is it. And yet, all the guilty programs are like shown again and again and again. And it's just so biased. Even the media's biased, you know. Because I mean, they did screen it, but it's that once, and if you missed it. If you're interested in this case in any way, shape, or form, then you've probably already seen the drama. And if you haven't, I can almost bet that you will have at least seen some of the Innocence Campaign's online content. Much in the same way that I feel biases in how the media deals with their campaign, they are also frustrated at what they see as a consistent sense of negativity towards Jeremy's campaign from traditional media outlets. And even the negative, like that drama was horrendous, um... You know, we were like, we hijacked the hashtag. We were tweeting the truth as that program was on. And, but even the negativity of that encouraged people to look at for the truth and to seek out the truth and look at the website, look at the videos we've put together, look at the evidence and the facts of the case. Because every single thing we state is from police documents that they've disclosed to us. So, you know, we're not speculating on anything. The evidence is there in black and white. What's taken the time is piecing every piece together, pulling the right threads, pulling, you know, because sometimes it leads to nothing. And yet other times you've got, you just feel, oh my goodness, where do I go first? You know, but it's, it's, we've now got the glue to bind all that evidence together. And so we're still finding things. Uh, Philip will tell you, found things just yesterday. And it's like, it's even more glue so that it makes our case watertight so that when we go to the CCRC, because that's ready to go, um, when we go to the CCRC, any little tiny hole is patched up. We don't have any holes in our case. It cannot be refused this time. 
At this stage in the interview, and before we get into the body of evidence itself, it's worth briefly pointing out a handful of really important points. The first is to say that while most of the public tends to favour Jeremy being guilty, there is a growing number of people who don't. And many of these people are often those that have found the campaign websites. I've perhaps read some of the discussive articles that tend to pop up in the media every few weeks, or perhaps it's from their increasing social presence. And full disclosure, that's certainly the category that I fall into, because my history with this case undoubtedly started with the campaign itself. It was the evidence regarding the call logs and the moderator that inevitably led me to research this case further. And I previously found the information on their website compelling at least and convincing at best. The website is a hub of information and no one can fault the sheer volume of information that is provided. If you're looking to read up on the case further, I'd suggest taking a look there at the end of this episode. But it hasn't come without its own criticism, with the campaign itself having even been raised in parliamentary debates due to criticism over the campaign and the morality of its existence. For some, there are obvious moral questions over this, namely regarding the influence that Jeremy Bamber has and the extent to which he, as a convicted killer, should be able to communicate with the public, which he arguably does through his campaign team. After all, while the campaign team argue his innocence, as they have a right to do, he is technically a convicted killer, and, by the law, he has been proven to have taken the lives of five people, two of whom were very young children. The morality and boundaries under which such groups should operate is a rare and often unheard debate, because so few and small are their greater presence within the media. It's not visible, And so it's just one of those issues that seems needless to address. If there isn't a visible problem, then there isn't a need for a solution. But nonetheless, it does beg the question, how far should you go in the pursuit of an alleged miscarriage of justice? I say this because there are so many questions over what they can and should do. With, as I said, even a question having been raised in Parliament on a previous date over the blog that Jeremy's supporters use and whether or not it was legal for prisoners to communicate with the public via a blog. Then there has also been the stream of public controversies too. Just a few years ago, one of Bamba's supporters attended the grave of his parents, reading a letter that Jeremy had written for them. If he's guilty, the entire event is chilling. Earlier in 2015, the campaign hosted what was undoubtedly their most questionable awareness event, encouraging supporters of Bamba's to bake in support of the convicted killer. The caveat being that some of the family recipes provided were also those of Jeremy's mother, one of the five people he's convicted for having killed. The event caused outrage within the UK, with many expert charities speaking to condemn the move, reminding the public that there was a victim there is a family left behind. And that campaigning aside, events like this tended to regurgitate previous pain. In order for this episode to follow some kind of structure, I thought it was best to approach each aspect within its own bracket, starting with perhaps one of the most common theories in the case, the suggestion that Sheila was still alive when the police entered the farmhouse. The campaign team have long since argued that the timeline is off, and that instead Sheila Caffell died after the police had arrived. 
while Jeremy Bambo was outside with the police and hence had an alibi. The reasoning behind this is complex and convoluted, but I'd suggest you take a look at their website where there is much more information. The next part of the interview is particularly relevant. The campaign team go back to two key incidents that they say demonstrates that the police were well aware of life within the farm while the officers were waiting outside. The first allegation is that Buse and the other attending officers saw movement in the upper window and that it was this which prompted PC Buse to call for firearm support. They also allege that two notes contained within the incident blog also add weight to this suggestion and only strengthen their allegation that Sheila was knowingly alive during the standoff. One is that a 999 call was made from within the property something I also discussed with Chris Bues, and that the police were in contact with someone within the farm. One of these will be briefly visited by Yvonne a little bit later, but both will be discussed in the relevant episodes. We now know a lot more of all the Shield of the Life things. So, you know, we know not only was movement seen in the window by P.S. Bues, but we've got that um, there was a rifle seen in the window by two trained firearms officers who then said they'd been told it was a a pipe for a vacuum cleaner. Well, I'm sorry, a trained firearms officer and 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 a firearms instructor know the difference between a pipe for a vacuum cleaner and a rifle. You know, you're not telling me that they don't. Um, We've got two bodies were seen in the kitchen. You know, we've got the doctor being requested out to the scene to confirm the deaths of two people before the firearms team went upstairs and discovered another three bodies. Now, we know Sheila was found upstairs. We know the photographs show her upstairs, but when she was first seen, she was in the kitchen with Neville. She wasn't injured at that time, though. They know Sheila was the last to die because they know Sheila committed suicide after they'd entered the house. They heard her running upstairs. She was challenged Sheila Bamba, make yourself aware that's known. You know, the police officer said, PC Hall said, I, I heard movement in, and I said, Sheila Bamba, make your whereabouts known. He was later told that was an officer who was in an upstairs office at the opposite side of the house. No officers were upstairs at that time. Did, did he say there's a really dangerous trick of the light out here? You better get yourselves down here quick. They came out because of him. So it was directly his situation report that led to them coming out. So... To me, this makes absolutely no sense. The suggestion that the police knowingly covered or staged the crime scene seems off on so many different levels. But most of all, because they believed it was a murder-suicide from the very beginning. If they knew that Sheila had died last or that she'd died while they were present, what possible reason would they have for covering it up? All that would have done is support their initial theory it would have meant they didn't have to admit they'd made a mistake. It's impossible for us to ever know the true order of those who died. The police can offer theories and opinions, but none of them will ever know for certain. I am all for criticising the police for having done a shoddy job where appropriate, but in this instance, it feels completely and utterly false to suggest there was a cover-up. It makes no sense, and from what I've seen, isn't supported by any evidence. That moves us nicely on to the criticism of the police and the specific concerns that the campaign team have had 
over how this was handled. And some people might might argue that some of the firearms team gave evidence that Sheila had two gunshot wounds. But those statements from the firearms teams, they were they were not made until September 1985. They were made by being shown photographs of the scene. So they weren't made on the day. They were made weeks later and they were shown a photograph. Right, this is Sheila, how you saw her at the scene. Three of those firearms officers, the three of the very first firearms officers in the house, out of the party of six who initially entered, three of them who went in the bedroom all said, Sheila's not how I remember her. Her head isn't in the same position. You know, they, they, they disputed the evidence that was on the photographs, and yet that was ignored. They told DC Dickinson after the trial, in 1986, and each and every one of them disputed what they remembered from the actual scene and their own eyes was different than what the photographs they were shown weeks later to make their statements. Yes, you heard that correctly. The newest theory is that of the two gunshot wounds, only one was inflicted by Sheila herself, with the second injury having been inflicted on accident by one of the many officers at the scene. As with all the work they do, the campaign team also suggests that this is confidently supported by the evidence and that there are reams of statements and documents to support this new theory. Yes, because, I mean, this this is obviously something that was quite, or very prejudicial to Jeremy at the trial because suicides involving more than one shot they're certainly not unknown, but they're, they're relatively rare. I think about 3 to 4% of gunshot cases fall into that category. So by definition, that is far less likely to happen. But what Yvonne has now, by going through all the statements of the people who initially saw Sheila before 9.15 in the morning, uh, what emerged was that all of those six people saw her when she only had one gunshot wound. And they were all very specific about that. It's not, you know, any equivocation. She, they saw her with the shot under her chin, which was obviously the, the fatal shot that, that she inflicted on herself. So we've sort of worked out, Yvonne has worked out, that what happened as far as the second shot is concerned, that we think that when they were arranging the scene or arranging for the uh, photographic uh, evidence to be taken. Somebody lifted the rifle up, and there was still a, uh, a bullet in the breech, and it went off accidentally. And you can see from the second shot, from the angle, which is 80 degrees, that it's some it was delivered from above, her, and it would have been virtually impossible for her to hold the rifle out. That because then it would have been too heavy because she'd have been holding it by the barrel and trying to reach the the uh, trigger but it was done by somebody standing over her. And um, that, as I say, was extremely prejudicial to uh, Jeremy at the trial because you know, that would have put a doubt in the back of the jury's mind. But it goes, it, sorry, just to finish the point, it, go, it goes beyond that because the, the way the, pro, the prosecution presented their case, it was like an inverted pyramid and everything in that pyramid rested on the apex, which was Malcolm Fletcher, the ballistics expert's opinion that the 
moderator had been on the gun throughout the incident. And he based that on that second shot. Now, <clears throat> if what we're saying is true, that that second shot was done by the police accidentally, there is no question that it was delivered without the moderator. Because, you know, from the very first time they saw the gun on her body, there was no moderator, so that's not in dispute. That shows that Malcolm Fletcher's expertise in this area is totally worthless. If he couldn't see that that had been delivered without a moderator, then everything he said about the other shots falls away because he, he got that wrong, completely wrong. So there, there are various elements to it. And um, we're, we're convinced that, you know, we've got six different statements that say she was seen with one shot before 9.15. But one of, one of the extraordinary things that struck me from uh, Carol Ann Lee's podcast the other day was where she just blithely said the reason Taft Jones thought that it was Sheila was because, <laughs> because Jeremy had told or made out that it was, which I, I just found an extraordinary statement. Because the fact is, Pat Jones had very good reasons to think it was Sheila, because he knew about the rifle in the window. And that, and that's something Yvonne mentioned earlier, but that is a really important piece of evidence. Because if, if that rifle was in the window, there is no other explanation other than Sheila committed suicide. You, you, can't, you can actually make a case for saying that each one of the five people involved shot one of the others. Obviously, that's a fantastical, but it, from a pure logic point of view, you can make that argument. But whatever scenario you come up with, it has to end with Sheila committing suicide if that rifle was in the window. Now, as Yvonne said, two trained firearm officers saw that, and we believe that the rest of them saw it as well, but they just hadn't released the uh, relevant statements. And um, they saw that a long time apart as well. The first one saw it just after seven o'clock, and the second one saw it just after the raid of the gun at about 7.40. So Taff Jones knew about that. So that was one reason why he thought it was Sheila. The other was because he knew that she'd been seen, or at least there were signs that she was moving around in the house. They'd been talking to somebody within the farmhouse at 5.25. They had the 6.09... 999 call from within the house and the only sentient beings that could have been alive at that point were Sheila and the dog so assuming it wasn't the dog that was making the 999 call it had to be Sheila so his his conclusion was based on very sound evidence it had nothing whatsoever to do with Jeremy and what he said uh, and also the final point on that is that Taft Jones knew she'd only been shot once because he was told by the firearms people what had happened, and he was part of the cover-up, which is why he was in a very difficult position when the second inquiry started, because he couldn't come out and say, well, look, guys, you know, actually my mate, Montgomery, who was the head of the um, firearms team that was there, told me, you know, they'd made a complete cock-up and managed to shoot her accidentally themselves, which is what he should have done. He should have said, look, you know, there's been a mistake here, and, you know, it was actually us who did the second shot. And if he'd done that, things would have worked out very differently. But he, for whatever reason, chose not to. But So, you know, this brings another question in of, originally it was a case against Sheila. It was murder-suicide. It was given a specific case reference number. And we know 
that when it then became, Jeremy became the suspect from the 7th of September, the case was given a brand new reference number. There are very, very, very few documents we have got from that original case reference number. We know we've got statements missing. We've got a report made by DCI Keneally that said, made on the 6th of September, that said he was asked to do a review and he was told, well, the evidence indicates that Sheila's responsible. We don't have his report. We don't have the evidence that he used. Could one of them pieces of evidence have been the suicide note that we now know existed, that DS Jones admitted to in 2002? You know, there were lots of pieces of paper at the scene and a lot of uh, references to suicide notes in the past. And could this possibly be a suicide note? He was very specific. It was only recently discovered. And he said, you know, we treated it as a, as a murder-suicide. We didn't go looking for anything else that's, that, you know, could have implicated anybody else. Because you don't do that when you've got a note that says, I've just killed myself. And he didn't say it once, he said it twice. And as its police and the Metropolitan Police were approached to, you know, see about the credibility of this document and, you know, you know, is this genuine or because we, we always prove that things are actually genuine and they didn't dispute it. They didn't dispute it at all. You know, they've got computer indexes of the documents that were generated in the case. Um, and they call it the Huns 2 computer system. The number of documents that are referenced on there that we've never had is astounding. You know, and two of them say a referenced suicide note, Sheila Cassell. We don't have that. We don't have that document. And we've, we've asked them for it. We said, give us Holmes box X, Y, Z. And they've, no, you're not having it. No. Give us it, give it the photographs of the silencers. These are the Holmesbox reference numbers. No, you're not having them. So why not? If they're being honest, if they're being honest and that the evidence that they've got is, is inconsequential to the case and it's just like, you know, it's not important, not relevant. You've got what's relevant. If that's not relevant, let us have it. Let us look at the photographs. You know, let's look at the 77 missing photographs from the scene that were taken that day. Where, why can't we look at them? You know, why not give us the photographs of the silences? You know, because does one show loads and loads of pain in the end and the other one, we know these physical differences to them, but they don't want us to see them. But we don't need to see them to prove what we're saying is true. But it would certainly make, you know, Jeremy's next appeal, which we are absolutely convinced he will get, you know, will make that so much easier for the judge to be able to say to the judge, look, here is this one, here is that one. Jeremy's innocent. The the information was merged. It was conflated to, to give the wrong impression. We don't know if the police got confused. We don't know if they did it deliberately. We don't know what happened and why certain things happened. Well, the evidence speaks for itself. And so... You know, admit you've made a mistake. Jeremy was a 10 to 2 majority verdict, and yet he's on a whole life tariff. So he's got death by sentence. He will never get out of jail unless we this evidence gets him out of jail. So we are absolutely determined that it will. 
you know, it's there, it speaks for itself, it's in the case material. We've not invented that material. This is police documents they've given us. So it's, it's there, it's your document, you've provided it. So now do the right thing. Admit you made mistakes. Admit that, you know, you've been confused over this issue. You've confused yourselves. We don't, we don't care how you do it. Just admit that you've done it wrong, that actually, you know, there were two calls made to the police. There were two sounds as somebody was alive and active in the house making 999 calls. I mean, we know at nine minutes past six in the morning, somebody made a 999 emergency telephone call from White House Farm. And as a result of that, they called two ambulances to the scene, one for immediate use and one from standby. Now, they've been at that scene since before four o'clock. So they can't say to us, oh, well, we just thought it was time. We'd, we'd call a couple of ambulances because we thought we'll break in in about an hour. No, you don't do that. They were told something on that phone that caused them to call the ambulances out. The officer who monitored that 999 call didn't even get asked to make a witness statement. And the first time he was questioned about it was in 2002. And he told the Stoke and Church police officers, you won't find any paperwork about this. So why not? Why not? What are they trying to hide? Be open. Give us a disclosure. Give us the documents we're asking for. Give us the photographs we're asking for. And prove that you're not hiding anything. Because they absolutely are. They've convicted an innocent man. You know, for now we've just passed... The Jeremy's been in jail 35 years because he did a, a year on mound. You know, he's lost, you know, the best years of his life. In a, in, in a jail for a crime he categorically did not commit. The evidence is there. We can prove it. You know, they've just got to actually admit it now. And I think one other important thing that nobody ever, ever, ever raises is that prosecution never at any stage disputed that Sheila was the last to die. You know, they had um, no, um, the doctor didn't take body temperatures. They, they had no, you know, chain of evidence uh, as far as they were concerned as to what happened in the house. But they never once disputed that Sheila was the last to die. It was accepted as fact. So why would they accept that as fact? Because we don't know, and there's no way anybody could know the order that people were killed in that house. But yet they, it was the Essex police and the prosecution have, have always said Sheila was the last to die. So how, if Jeremy was the one that committed these murders, why was Sheila the last to die? Why was she not the first to die? They've never, they've never said that. They've never disputed it. They've never argued it. It's their evidence and they've said, you know, Sheila was the last to die. Again, I'm not sure that that has ever actually been proven. But even if it was, it hardly proves that she committed the murders. The idea that Sheila was alive has become a huge staple for the campaign team. And so for them, it's vital to their version of events. That moves us swiftly on to the two-call theory. That part of the case that was probably the most convincing to me 
all those years ago. Again, it's an issue that we are going to spend a fair bit of time on in future episodes. By now, you'll have already heard about the phone call that Jeremy Bamber made to the police following the call from his dad. But the campaign team alleged that they have a record of two phone calls made to police that morning, one of which was made by Neville and one which was made by Jeremy. The two documents do record separate information, different addresses, phone numbers and wording, with one noting Jeremy's details and the other noting Neville's. The timestamps are also different, with the one record in Neville's name noting 3.26am and the second, Jeremy's, noting 3.36am. Curiously, the two documents do look different and are clearly not the same type of form and also both have the same call handlers, West and Bonnet. While the defence and campaign allege that this is evidence of Neville having called the police first, hence verifying Jeremy's accusation, the prosecution attempted at trial to prove that there had simply been an error in the recording of the time and that actually the 336 should be 326, making both records the same time. Since, the call handler has also come out and said that that's all it was, a simple mistake and that both logs are actually a record of the same call, one having been completed by West and one having been completed by Bonnet. However, the campaign argue that this is inconsistent with the evidence they now have, and that on the contrary, their new evidence further verifies this version of events. It was something that I needed to touch on with the campaign team, even if it was only briefly. But I can assure you that it is a string of evidence that I have now explored thoroughly and so there will inevitably be a much longer episode on this aspect in a few weeks but anyway here's what they had to say new evidence we disclosed earlier this year um absolutely confirms that jeremy's call was at 336 um we've got pc west who took his call who said at the trial oh jeremy was on the phone about a minute before i contacted the police officers well and then he said, well, I mean, it's a long time, you know, and they said you couldn't possibly have said all you need to say. He said, a minute is a long time. And we have one of the police officers at Witten Police Station who said they spoke to PC West at 3.37. So a minute difference, Jeremy's call was at 3.36. So it's unarguable. As I said, this was by far the most compelling piece of evidence for me when I believed in Bamba's innocence. And given where I stand now, you can imagine what I've since discovered. That episode is only a few weeks away. The conversation then turned to the order of the calls. Why Jeremy hadn't called 999 and why he had called his girlfriend Julie before leaving the cottage. Uh, Jeremy was uh, obviously aware he's, he's never had been a magistrate. He knew a lot of the police officers in the local area. And Jeremy also knew just how private his mum and dad were you know, they were a very, very private family. And if Jeremy would have rung, he was like, you know, what shall I do? And for Jeremy to ring 999, a police car screeching to the house, lights on and everything, it's like, you know, he wouldn't have done that because that would have been an embarrassment had it turned out that he'd got there and never would then sat there with Sheila around the table having a cup of tea. It's like, you know, he didn't appreciate how could he possibly know what was going to happen. And so because he couldn't get back hold of his dad, the phone was engaged when he tried to ring Neville back. Jeremy contemplated, what shall I do for the best? And the best is 
ring the local police station, let's get a car out there, let's check everything's all right, because he probably sat there having a cup of tea. Neville had always been the one that could calm Sheila down. When she down to previous psychotic episodes, Neville always went to her. I mean, Colin would ring Neville, Freddie rang Neville. It was like, you know, he would could calm her down. He'd stay on the phone with her all night to talk her down. So he was the one person that she would listen to. Um, and also when he rung Jeremy with his concerns, wanting him to go and, you know, maybe help calm her down, it was like, you know, he was like, didn't, he, he hadn't been shot at that stage. Nothing, we don't believe anybody had been shot at that stage. Quite. He didn't, yeah, he didn't say, Sheila's shooting people, please get over here. And he just, you know, don't, don't forget, although Jeremy didn't really understand the full extent of Sheila's it, uh, illness, he, he knew that she did have these periodic episodes where life was a, a struggle for her and, you know, she found difficulty communicating or whatever. So this wasn't something out of the blue. This this was the type of thing that had happened before. So he didn't immediately think, oh, my God, this is a total crisis. It was concerning, but it wasn't apocalyptic at that point. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the level of concern when he made that call was, it was concerning, but it wasn't, you know, oh, my God, I'm about to you know, be shot eight times. You know, please get down here. So... Sorry, just to complete that point, don't forget the police response was to send officers from the local police station. So, in fact, you know, he, he achieved what he was trying to achieve, the quickest possible response. The telephone call is pivotal because without it, Jeremy could have only known about what was unfolding if he was the one who'd committed it. Well, quite. Well, there is no logic. I mean, it, it the, the phone call, if he had made up the phone call from his father, it would have been the equivalent of sticking his hand in the air and saying, I did it. For several reasons. A, because at that time they were in the process of digitalising the local telephone exchange and some of the lines in the area did have time recording on them. Um, So there'd be no way he would know that there wouldn't have been no record of that call which in itself would have been an admission of guilt. Um, and there are various other factors along the similar lines about time of death, um, you know, the difference between time and death that would have also pointed the finger towards him. So, you know, making up that phone call would have been a very, very stupid thing to have done. As we'll see in a future episode, there are huge discussions to be had over whether Neville Bamba could have even made the infamous phone call as it's possible that the injuries that he'd sustained upstairs would have made that borderline impossible. If Neville was injured upstairs, it's almost certain that he wouldn't have been able to make the call due to the injuries to his larynx. It's something the campaign team themselves have even acknowledged. Yeah, it was before he was injured. Um, and that was one of the sort of irritating things about the drama, that they made the... Uh, bald statement that well, he couldn't have made that phone call because he'd been shot in the mouth, which if he had been shot in the mouth when he tried to make such a phone call would have been true. But uh, they seem to not even consider the possibility that it was made beforehand. And what we think happened is that, you know, Sheila came down at some point during the night when Neville was still either in the, in the lounge or in the kitchen 
which he had a habit of doing, just staying up late and dozing in the chair. Um, she probably picked up the rifle, started waving it around, and he obviously became concerned about you know, what might or could happen. Uh, he called Jeremy to ask for his help in trying to coax her into giving the weapon back. And when that didn't work, um, you know, things obviously went downhill pretty quick. But before he was fully aware of what she'd done or was about to do, that's when he rang the police himself, for which we have you know, multiple pieces of evidence. And if everybody accepts that if he made that call to the police, then you know, that there is no possibility that Jeremy was involved in any way. The problem with this theory is, well, the evidence, as we'll get into in a few weeks' time. Since this interview, a new version of events has started to emerge, and perhaps you now see where the confusion comes from. The new theory, which mostly contradicts all the evidence, is that Neville wasn't injured upstairs at all. In a recent podcast episode that they did on the case, they suggest that the evidence now proves that Neville Bamba was not shot upstairs, and that instead he was, as they surmise, downstairs during the entirety of the incident. They do not, however, reveal exactly what the evidence is or how it explains away the number of bullets found in the bedroom. Why were there few too many casings in the kitchen for Neville's gunshot injuries to have been sustained there? Or, on the flip side, why are there too many casings in the bedroom to account for June? They do suggest in the podcast episode that both June and Nicholas received more injuries than were previously set out by police and that this potentially accounts for the extra bullets found there. The police's arrival is also a source of contention within the campaign, making it very, very clear that they have serious concerns with P.S. Buse's version of events. And I think that's why they parked the car, didn't park the car, police car in the farmyard next to the house, they parked the car on the lane and then walked to the farmhouse, you know, because it probably was always that, well, we might antagonise the situation. They didn't know, you know, what was going to be the situation when they got there. And so it could have all been nice and calm and, you know, but unfortunately it wasn't. Made a situation report at 4.09 and as a result of that situation report, so you so this is something I was saying to somebody yesterday. Buse said he saw either a reflection of the moon or a trick of the light that he like went back and thought, Oh, no, it's just a trick of the light, right? No, if he's going to run back to the car, immediately get on the radio and request firearms assistance, is this, would they come out for a trick of the light? What did he say to them on the phone during that situation report? Did he say, we've got a siege situation? How did he know that? If the house was all quiet, as he said, He's even had one where he said it was the officers who were sat in the car, PC Saxby. The PC Saxby saw the saw the movement. It's like, well, he was sat in the car. So one of the other main things that Mr. Buse always says is, Jeremy turned up about four and a half hours after us. He was driving really slow. The allegation, presumably, is that Jeremy Bamba wanted to be seen by the police, whether being that they picked him up as he asked or that they overtook him on the way there. Those who believe in his guilt now allege that this was all part of his attempt to build some kind of alibi. Further on uh, Chris Buse, um, 
I mean, we know they made statements on the night that we've never had disclosed to us, handwritten statements. But one of the other main things that Mr. Buse always says is, Jeremy turned up about four and a half hours after us. He was driving really slow and he was like, yeah, rubbish. Right. Jeremy was behind, Jeremy was going at the, you know, he'd just woken up. This is what people don't get. He'd just been in bed after a 12 hour day at the farm. He's, you know, gone home. He'd stayed up till about 11 o'clock. Four hours later, he's woke up with this disturbing telephone call of his dad. He's then spoken to the police, right, get to the farm and meet the officers there. He's still half asleep, he's a lad, you know. So he gets in the car, drives to the farm safely because, and as well, he doesn't know what's going on and he doesn't want to get there before the police get there. He knows they're on the way. He doesn't know where they're coming from. They could have been coming from Chelmsford, Whitton, anywhere. He didn't know what station was going to be coming. Another police car jumps past him. You know, it's lights on. And Jeremy arrived two minutes after them. They hadn't got out of the car when Jeremy pulled up behind them. But yet Chris Buse has had that going from, he arrived two minutes after us to 10 minutes after us to 20 minutes after us. Well, you know, Mr Buse just telling the truth. I mean, they even criticised the fact that Jeremy went to his car to get a jumper to put a jumper on. I mean, you know... You know, someone asks yourself, oh, cold, you've just been woken up. You feel cold when you've woken up, you're tired. You know, they, they even thought that was suspicious, not immediately, but in the time to come. They said, oh, well, he went back to his car and got a jumper, wasting time. It's like, you know, it's just invented. The question over how Jeremy Bamber behaved in the weeks following the murders is something that the campaign team justified easily, reminding me that it was an extremely traumatic and difficult situation. Well, that's the time you need support. And I mean, um, like they showed on, you know, on television recently, there was like analysing Jeremy at the funeral and all his bottom lip was, and it's like, oh my goodness me, this this man was 24 years old. He'd lost every person he loved in the world. He had the wider family who were then, oh, we want that painting, oh, we're having that, oh, oh, you know, um, trying to get all June's engagement, we want your mother's engagement ring, we want a wedding ring. Never left him alone. Peck, 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 peck. You got the police who should have had, nowadays you'd have a um, family liaison officer who would be there helping you through this and assisting you. Jeremy didn't get any of that. He had a farm where he had workers and he had to pay the wages. It was the middle of the harvest. He had that responsibility on his shoulders to sort those out. 24 years old. What a massive responsibility. And if he raised a smile once, do you know, during the entire police investigation, is that not allowed? Are you not allowed? I mean, it would have been a lot. Jeremy's a very um, quiet person. He's not one for, like, you know, public sort of look at me. He's not like that, isn't Jeremy? And, you know, you've got all the cameras in the country from the BBC News and ITV and all the local media and all these people at the funeral knowing that they're looking at you. I mean, you know, I would, like, shrink behind my clothes, you know, but... 
Jeremy tried to be proud of his, of, you know, representing his family. And yet they have analysed every single manoeuvre he made. If he cast a smile, it was like, not that he was smiling at these friends across the road, which is what actually happened, but the German was smiling, being all smug, because he was going to court, because he committed these horrendous acts. Well, he smiled at friends. The TV show they are referring to is, of course, the very popular Faking It. Talking of faking and telling lies, let's turn briefly to Jeremy's girlfriend, Julie Mugford, a lady whose testimony was later to be essential to Jeremy's conviction. Well, Julie's evidence changed that she was aware. She said that Jeremy had been planning this for a year. He'd thought of all different ways and fires and poisonings and all sorts of different methods that he could kill his family. And if that would have happened, she would have been absolutely terrified of him. She would not, you know, have continued her relationship. She would have been terrified knowing what she had known. And if that had happened and, and he'd have made all these plots and plans and then, you know, they come to fruition and it had happened, well, if he'd have rung her at 10 o'clock at night and went, tonight's the night, it's going to happen tonight, anybody in their right mind, no matter who that person was, would ring the police. They would ring the family. They would ring Neville and say, oh, my God, Jeremy's lost the plot. You need to get out of that house. Something's going to happen. Somebody. But So, you know what I mean? It did not happen. It did not happen. Spoke to Neville about 3.15, spoke to Julie about 3.30, then rang the police, which, again, is, a, is more supportive evidence that the 3.26 call could not have been Jeremy, couldn't have been on a phone call to the police and to Julie at the same time. The time of the call to Julie has changed consistently since Jeremy's first statement in August of 1985, and for good reason, if you ask me. The suggestion that Jeremy paused to call Julie at that time of the morning before calling the police is somewhat questionable. According to him, when he did call the police, he lost patience with how long they were taking. Yet he'd not been so panicked when he came off the call to his father. What is it that Julie is alleged to have said to him that escalated the situation in his mind? Never has Jeremy publicly suggested that he consulted with Julie on what he should do, or at least I've never seen any suggestion of it from him. Why? I can't wrap my head around pausing to call my partner if I knew my family were in such grave danger. You can't be impatient for a resolution while also taking the time to consult someone who had little reassurance to offer. Another thing, if Jeremy's call was at 3.36am, he was on the phone for a matter of minutes. Is that consistent with someone who felt the police weren't acting quick enough. Was that enough time for him to have said all we know he said, for two separate individuals to have been involved in the conversation? I am now tending to disagree. Yeah, what shall I, what shall I do? My dad's just throwing this, you know, and she, something's going on. Sheila's not right. I'm, and Julie's mother told him to go back to bed. Julie's mother said, go back to bed. So, you know, this is where her evidence is so questionable because, you know, in her original statements, Jeremy had rung her when he got home from work. 
It asked her about her day and it had a nice 20 minute conversation. And then later on in, in the early hours of the morning, Jeremy had rung her saying something's going on at the farm. I don't know what to do. She said, I'll just go back to bed. And then, and then that changes. You know, and then Jeremy's out, tonight's the night. I mean, really? Jeremy never said that. Julie had plans. Julie had plans. Julie wanted to, she wanted to go and live in Valty Manor, which was one of the properties that Jeremy would have eventually inherited. Um, she wanted to marry him. She would, he would have been a very successful farmer. She was telling people that they were engaged at the Christmas before. She was telling her, oh, me and Jeremy's engaged and he's my fiancé. They weren't. They were never engaged. It was never a ring. It was just, you know, something that was said. But she really wanted. And when she found out that Jeremy had been seeing one of her friends on one occasion and that he did, I mean, it, it just ended the relationship. It just got too much. I mean, she tried to she tried to smother him with a pillow. She admitted that. If I can't have him, nobody's going to have him. I mean, she admitted that to the police. You know, she was she was very um, demanding of Jeremy. She wanted him to take her. You know, she would, she she wasn't very domesticated and would make a meal. They had to go out for a meal, and it was like she was very very demanding, but not supportive. And you know, Jeremy just had enough. And, you know, she was violent if he spoke to other people. And um, you know, she thought he had a relationship with Brett Collins, and she thought he had a relationship with this woman and that woman, and completely paranoid about Jeremy going off with somebody else. And he finished with her, and it was only when she realised there's nothing I could, this isn't... I mean, he helped her move flat the day before she went to the place. But she didn't literally go to the place. We've discovered that her and her friend went to an older man's house to, like, say, oh, what, what do you think of this? Right, tell... tell Tell him what uh, you've told me, Julie. Oh, yeah, Jeremy planned it, blah, blah, blah. And she, they've been insisting, you need to ring the police, Julie, if this is true. And she refused to ring the police. And it was Malcolm Waters who rang the police. And then they went to his house and arrested Julie and Liz, took them into the cells and said, right, now tell us what this evidence is. You know, she's 21 she was scared, witless. It was like all these police are turning up. Now I'm in the police station, you know, and that's when everything changed. Well, especially when they offered her immunity from prosecution if she would act as a prosecution witness. I mean, Julie was no angel. The police will have you think Julie was an angel. She was no angel. I mean, she'd, she'd trying to smother Jeremy. She'd, she'd, um, um, propagated drugs. She'd sold drugs at college. She'd, you know, smuggled drugs into England from Canada and from Holland. And, you know, I mean, she was no angel. She was, they said Jeremy corrupted her. She was doing things before she met Jeremy. So, you know, they can have the theories, but we know the truth. Eventually, our conversation inevitably turned to Sheila, the other essential suspect in this story specifically her ill health and her relationship with her brother. Sheila had already had foster care help, day foster care. So um, after Colleen left her alone with two babies, she needed help. She wasn't able to cope. And social services got involved and she was offered day foster care, which she took and was very grateful for. And 
you know, the hair with the upbringing of the boys. But when she moved to Maida Vale, so after she was divorced from Colin and she moved to Maida Vale, that stopped because she was in a different district then. And so um, she struggled, you know, even more so. So social services were still involved, but they closed Sheila's case, said she was fine. And they couldn't get her the help that she needed. Um, now, Sheila loved her children. Sheila absolutely loved those boys. And the fear of when she was hospitalised the second time, Colin then took full responsibility for the children and she only saw them very occasionally. And But she had so many great delusions of, she they frightened her, they scared her, she couldn't help how, how she felt. And when she found out that you know, her parents were sat talking about the foster care issue, which, by the way, the police said Jeremy is the only source of that information. We have witness statements from foster carers and from Colin's mother that said about this, that um, we just think something snapped and she just couldn't deal with. She was emotionally, you know, her medication had been reduced to the incorrect dosage, to the yeah, to the incorrect um, timeline of having her evidence, um, medication. Should it, it went from being fortnightly, 200 milligram, to being monthly at 100 milligram, which just wasn't enough. And uh, couldn't control her, her states. Um, she'd been recently, she thought that she was going to get back with Colleen at a recent barbecue that they'd had. She'd look lovely and everything. You know, and the disappointment of, and it was a chain of things. So it was, you know, the fear that she was going to lose her boy. She didn't see them very often anyway because they lived Colin. So the fear that she'd never see them at all, coupled with the realisation she'd never get back with Colin, that she was ill and couldn't, you know, she had all these issues going on. You know, that, that we just believe something snapped, she just couldn't cope. And her medication was at the wrong dose. So, but it absolutely was about foster caring. Well, Sheila was on a massive, massive dose. I mean, these day and age, the haloperidol is like 20 milligram by injection. Sheila was on 200 milligram by injection, and then they reduced it to 100 wrongly. Should have been reduced to 150. It's still an absolutely massive dose by today's standards. Sheila was a beautiful, incredible lady who just had problems. He loved Sheila. He was very proud. Yeah. yeah he, I mean, he was so proud of his big sister. I mean, his big sister was beautiful and successful and she involved him. I mean, you know, he, but she looked after him at school and when they were at junior school and, you know, this is this is my little brother and you better look after him. And they absolutely loved each other. You can see that on photographs of them. You know, we don't have many photographs because the wider family make sure that, you know, Jeremy didn't get, he hasn't got photographs, you know, it's been very difficult to get them, but the photographs we do have, you know, you can see for yourself that they just absolutely adored each other. They, you know, they were very close. They were very close. Now, let's move our attention to the rifle, a huge part of this case, and specifically the likelihood of Sheila having been able to use yeah, well, it. Yeah, she'd lived around guns all her life. I mean, as you say, the comment on the on the farm, she used to go out beating as a beater when the, on the used to have shoots regularly. Um, so she 
took part in those. She'd been on a shooting holiday with David Bowflower in Scotland and shot, but on that occasion was a shotgun. I mean, they're much more difficult because you've got to break it and and everything. Where with the gun that was involved in the incident, it was a, a magazine. So it involved putting like a clip into the rifle and then cocking it. And off you go, you're not having to break what they call break it, snap it in half to put the bullets in, which is quite difficult because I've tried myself and I've tested things to see how hard they are. And that is quite hard to do because you've got to force it, you know, and it's hard for me. Um, but it, it had a magazine. I mean, you load the magazine. It's not rocket science. I don't have any gun, but I did go to a gun shop and say, can I have a try with that, please, to see? Because you don't realise, how I want to know, like, how how heavy was the rifle? I don't know. So, you know, people used to say, well, Sheila would have never allowed to lift the rifle and do this with it and that with it. Yeah, of course she would, because, you know, it's like, well, hold one myself. And, and they said, they did say, the, the police um, said, oh, she couldn't have loaded it because the 10th bullet was difficult to load into the magazine. And, oh, I broke a thumbnail and Sheila's nails were intact and perfect and everything. Who knows how many bullets Sheila put in the magazine? Did she put 10 in? Did she put 18? You know, we don't know. There's only Sheila would have been able to tell us that. We don't know. It's only speculation that she would have put 10 bullets in. We know there was nine in when it was left with Jeremy because one was in the breach of the gun. So we know the magazine had nine at that stage. You know, we don't know. We can't speak for Sheila's actions on how many actual bullets she loaded into the magazine. She may have loaded it twice. She may have loaded it five or six times. And put like, we don't know. How can we know? And she would have seen people, yeah, she would have seen people doing that, you know, dozens and dozens of times. You just put it in the top and push it down. It's not, as Yvonne says, it's not that complicated. They're, they're not heavy. I mean, I, I shot a T2 rifle years and years ago when I was school, school, when I was a young teenager, and they are very light. I mean, it may not have been the same model, but they're all roughly the same sort of design, if the caliber's the same. Uh, and it's not, you know, you're not talking... A, a friend of mine compared using a rifle to driving a car. Before we reach the age of 17, and before you've had any kind of driving lessons, you'll have seen hundreds of people driving their cars. You'll have been inside cars and other vehicles while other people were driving. And you might have even paid attention to the driver's actions. Perhaps you're someone who's interested in cars or you're desperate for the day when you can finally drive. Regardless of how much knowledge of driving you have, how much attention you've paid or how many vehicles you've been in, observing isn't the same as learning. It's the very reason why British tests are made up of two parts, practical and theoretical. Because putting what you've learned into practice is important. Most of us couldn't turn up to that test centre and pass on the basis of what we've seen other people doing. We'd need to actually be shown what to do. It's also the reason why learning to drive with an instructor and learning to drive once you've passed are all separate issues on their own. Watching someone drive is just the same. Learning to drive with an instructor is an experience in itself. But the first time you take that car out on your own, once you've passed, It's like learning to drive all over again. I've had no gun experience. 
Not a single shot have I fired. I have no interest in weapons and I've never been around them. But do I think I could watch one of my relatives use a weapon and then instantly know how to commit a massacre? Not for a second. And from that line of thought comes the moderator, the elephant in the room of White House Farm. The moderator was a pivotal piece of evidence in the conviction against Jeremy Bamber. Why? Well, for several reasons. One, it's suspicious that the moderator isn't on the weapon in the first place, as relatives testified that it was usually put in the cupboard with the moderator attached. Two, it was found to have the presence of human blood. What was decided was likely to have been Sheila's, which, regardless of whose it was, suggested that it had been used during the killings. Three, that with the moderator attached, it was too long for Sheila, and that she would have then had to take it off when she realised this. Why would she have gone through the effort of putting it back in the cupboard? That's anyone's guess. Four, there was no blood in the muzzle itself. Since Sheila had two close contact wounds, if the moderator wasn't used, then Sheila's blood should have been inside the muzzle of the rifle. There was no blood in the rifle, but there was blood in the moderator. Five, there was paint flecks in the moderator which matched samples from the kitchen, suggesting it was attached when Neville was attacked in that area. The moderator, the moderator is a complete and utter red herring. About the scratches, the scratches on the underside of the mantle shell, they said were caused by a silencer on the end of a rifle during a struggle with Neville and his assailant in the kitchen. Well, that's not true because on the crime scene photographs, there's no paint flakes whatsoever on the floor, which you can't scratch a hard surface that's got 15 layers of paint on it and not expect any particles at all to fall to the floor. Now, we did put this forward to the CCRC previously and they disputed it, but we've got a lot more evidence since. So now we're not only able to show there was no paint on the floor that day, we now know when those scratches were made, who made them and how they made them. I can't say how we know that at the moment, what's from the case material, but um, that is going into the CCRC with these new submissions. So, you know, if those scratches that weren't made on the day, and we, we can now categorically show how, when and who made them, you know, and how, and, and the 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 chain of evidence for those scratch marks happening, which, you know, we've been able to establish, then that proves that, that what they said at the trial did not happen. You know, that there was no silencer on the gun. There really was not. But, yeah, but it's, uh, it's the moderator that the judge said to the jury on the silencer evidence alone, you can convict. So Philip might want to explain now, you know, we, we, how we know this too. Being careful not to say everything we know. <laughs> what, two silences? Yeah, well, this, this is the sort of central deception that, that managed to get the sort of prosecution case over the line. That the three bits of evidence against him were obviously Julie Mugford's fairy tales, um, the, the paints on the moderator, and the blood supposedly in the moderator. And um, the reason why two moderators, the fact that there were two moderators found, one on the day by the police, as they announced for the press shortly afterwards, 
and one by the relatives on the 10th, so three days later, uh, which was given to the police, I think, on the 12th. The, the reason that matters is because the test results for the paint that were produced in court came from the first moderator, which they gave the reference number SBJ12, and the blood that was presented at court came from the second moderator, which they gave the reference DB12. And that was the central deception that they indulged in. They, they pretended that both those pieces of evidence came from one single moderator. And by a sleight of hand, because they didn't show the jury two separate moderators, and they controlled how the forensic scientists were shown the moderator that they examined, the jury were given the impression that both the paint and the blood had come from this one single moderator. And that's why the fact that there are two moderators matters. So I, I know that I think you've seen the comment that was made during the judicial review where the Crown's barrister said, well, it doesn't matter if there are 40 moderators. That, that is just wrong. It does matter because there were two and the evidence that was presented as having come from one actually came from two separate items because we believe that they rightly didn't think that the jury would accept the fact that two moderators had been used during the incident. Well, yeah, no moderators were used. We know that because we've had detailed forensic reports from US um, pathologists who have you know, extensive experience in gunshot wounds, who, who have unanimously said that there was no moderator in the gun. Um, and we've had our own experts here look at it, and they were of the same opinion. So it is a red herring, but because that is the platform they presented the, uh, you know, the, the, the evidence that got his prosecution from, you know, we obviously have to have to counter that, uh, and that's the reason it matters. Confused? Yeah, me too. Here's what they had to say about the blood. And the jury were told the blood came from Sheila and Sheila only. And we now know that they, they matched it also to Robert Bowflower was the exact same blood group as Sheila. Now, we're not saying that's Robert Bowflower's blood. We're not saying they planted it, he did anything. We're not saying that. We're saying is the jury were told it was Sheila's, only Sheila's, and therefore she couldn't have committed suicide because she couldn't have reached to shoot herself with the silencer attached. We're saying, no, it wasn't only Sheila's. It could have been, it was the same as Robert's. It's the same as 8% of the population. And so therefore, how can they say it came from Sheila? How long did, how long had that book been there? Could have been there, Neville had had that silencer since November, 1984. It could have been in their months. You know, it could have been one of the farm workers. We don't know. But it certainly wasn't Sheila's and Sheila's only, as they presented at the trial. So the, if the jury would, but the judge categorically prevented the evidence of Robert Bofar's book being told to the jury, he categorically put a block on it. And of course, in 2001, 2002, for the appeal, and the reason we got the appeal is because Sheila's DNA was not found in, the, in any silencer but an unknown male's was. Now, we're not saying that Robert was the unknown male DNA, but 
of all the people they took DNA samples of, he didn't give a sample. So, you know, maybe that's something they should have they should have checked, but they didn't. Um, but like I say, it could have been somebody who could be one of the police officers whose DNA was in it. We don't know. You know, they need to do that elimination. But I mean, there's not it's not just that evidence. I mean, we know we now know a lot more of all the shield of the life things. So, you know, we know not only was the movement seen in the window by PS views, but we've got that um, there was a rifle seen in the window by two trained firearms officers who then said they'd been told it was a, clean, a pipe for a vacuum cleaner. Well, I'm sorry, a trained firearms officer and a, and a, and a firearms instructor know the difference between a pipe for a vacuum cleaner and a rifle. You know, you're not telling me that they don't. Um, we've got two bodies were seen in the kitchen. You know, we've got the doctor being requested out to the scene to confirm the deaths of two people before the firearms team went upstairs and discovered another three bodies. Now, we know Sheila was found upstairs. We know the photographs show her upstairs. But when she was first seen, she was in the kitchen with Neville. She wasn't injured at that time, though. Um, Philip, this is Philip's favourite, so I'll let Philip tell you about this one. But what we can say, I think, is that none of the forensic examinations of either moderator before the middle of September found any evidence of paint on the end of either one before that date. So it clearly had no relevance to the incident whatsoever. And we have no doubt that if it had been presented to the jury, they wouldn't have found them guilty because they were already suspicious of uh, the, the extended family's motive. But the thing to remember about blood breathing, we're so conditioned now by DNA, that, which can obviously be very specific to one individual. Blood grouping is a process of elimination, whereas DNA is a process of identification. So all you can do with blood grouping is eliminate sections of the population that don't have that blood grouping. And as Yvonne said, 8% of the UK population had the same blood grouping as that found in the moderator, as well as Robert Buckflower and Rashima. Uh, so how the judge could then turn around and categorically say, this is Sheila's blood and Sheila's alone, is either a mistake or a de deliberate misdirection of the jury. I wanted to briefly touch on the exit and entry theory to ask them their thoughts on the idea that Jeremy was able to enter the house unheard. There were actually two dogs because there was the farm dog that was kept outside and the little dog that was inside and neither dog. I mean, the dogs were barking when the police arrived at the scene and were looking around the house because they'd seen flashlights, torches, you know, it's like somebody's walking around the farm as the dog is going to bark. None of the neighbours reported hearing a dog's bark before to the police going. You know what I mean? So, it, it, I mean, the windows issue, the windows issue is massive. I mean, they said Jeremy got in the bathroom window, which is a downstairs sort of shower room, and then made his means of exit through the kitchen window, got on his mum's bike, rode across the fields. It's like some amazing Batman type person. But it's like, it's really so inconceivable. The kitchen window alone, 
the jury was shown a photograph from an angle. So the catch looked like it would not fall to a fully closed position. And another crime scene photograph the jury didn't get to show, the, the catch was absolutely fully closed, which they could not do from the outside. But as well as that, there was a bottom catch on the window, an old-fashioned lever catch that went onto a little peg on the windowsill. That was closed. Crime scene photographs, photographs show, you can't see it very clearly, but you can see it's not sticking up. It's not at an angle. And PC Barlow, who did experiments on the window, said there's not a chance he could fasten that from the outside. Yet, the jury didn't get to hear that. So Jeremy could not have got out of that window. You know? So, and the bathroom window, they're saying, oh, this scratch marks on the catch and it slid a hacksaw blade. That window had been checked three times prior to the 1st of October when the scratches were first seen. And not a single trained scenes of crime officer who was looking for signs of entry had seen anything. There was no damage. There was no, it was fresh paintwork. It had only been done in the July. You know, so any new scratch marks would have been absolutely evident because it's it's recent paintwork. You know, it would have been even more clear because the old paint would have shown through. But on three examinations of both windows, there was absolutely no evidence. In fact, DCI Ainsley, we told Robert Bowflower that police sophisticated equipment had not found any sign of anyone entering or exiting the house. They checked the windows three times. And then all of a sudden in October, after Jeremy's been arrested, it's like, oh, we've now found scratches on that window. You know, really? There is as much fresh evidence that we can't speak about as is what is public. You know, we have felt there's been so much in the last 10 years that since we had disclosure of the documentation in 2011, there's been so much that I'd say there's about 50% of it's public. The remaining 50% we can't make public yet. So, you know, it, the case is absolutely massive. The submission grounds are huge. You know, there's not just one, like I said previously in other cases, there'll be one. Oh, then this is fleck of um, gunshot residue that was that was in somebody's pocket, but it could have come from, you know, something innocent. Or there was, oh, one witness statement's not been disclosed, and this says this. We literally have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, you know, with thousands of documents never been disclosed, with photographs. The case, like I said, there's only about half the evidence of Jeremy's innocence in the public domain at the moment because that's all we are permitted legally to disclose at this time. But once these submissions are made, then we will make that evidence public and people are just going to be absolutely astounded that Essex police still think they can maintain this conviction and that the Crown think that the evidence Essex police put forward originally was honest and not corrupt because we can prove it wasn't. We can prove they are corrupt, that, that they did... Mis misinformed the jury, they deliberately kept evidence from the jury hearing, you know, that the trial was not fair. Everybody has a right to a fair trial, as you said at the beginning. But when you're not told, you know, when the evidence is manipulated, you're not told these two silences. You're not told Sheila was only shot once initially. You're not told there was two telephone calls 
or that Germany couldn't have got out of that window without leaving a trace. You know, that that it was impossible for him to get from White House Farm to Goldhanger on a bicycle in 10 minutes. You know what I mean? So it's like the jury just were not, they weren't told about Julie Mumford's crimes, only one that she committed check offences. They weren't told that she was doing you know, uh, illegal things before she even met Jeremy. You know, they were lied to about the foster care issue. They were lied to about Sheila's state of mind. I mean, Jeremy was told that we're not here to prosecute Sheila, we're here to defend you. And that's where a lot of it fell down because they weren't able to present the evidence that they had about Sheila's state of mind and how, how a whole catalogue of roller coaster of things that had happened over the course of a few months and a few weeks had built up. It was, it was just absolutely shambolic, you know what I mean? And But it's like you've always, you can't go back without fresh evidence. You can't go back to the CCRC without fresh evidence. So, for instance, the call logs, when we discovered about the call logs, we went back to the CCRC and we said, right, we've got now, we can prove there was two phone calls. So we gave the CCRC that evidence. Their response was, well, the time issue was dealt with at the trial, so there's nothing new. But there was something new because they're saying different information. But even though they didn't address that, then we can't go back with that and say, but you didn't even comment on this. We've got to find new evidence to put to that, to take back. Do you know what I mean? And so this is why sometimes things take a long time because fortunately we found that new evidence of the call logs. So we can go back to them and say, look, we've now got this new evidence, but in addition to that, you now need to look again at the evidence you overlooked last time, take it holistically, and now make your decision based on the evidence as a whole, you know, not what was said at trial, not that the time, we're not arguing the time. We know there's a time difference because there's two different calls made at two different times. We're not disputing that. You know, if the prosecution want to maintain that's an error, then the prosecution and the Crown need to explain all these other anomalies that have now cropped up. And then if they can't do that, that's got to go to the Court of Appeal. That's got to let a judge judges decide. The only sound coming from the farm being that of the dogs. And that brings me on to another subject that I touched upon briefly with the campaign team. For anyone who has previously watched the 2020 drama, you'll distinctly remember the outrage with which the public greeted the revelation that Jeremy Bamber had for what the campaign alleged was sympathetic reasons had the smaller of the two dogs put to sleep. They say that this was because of the dog's age and the fact that it was unlikely to settle with another family. But I did want to touch briefly on exactly what the situation with the dogs was on the morning of the discovery. The farm had two dogs, one of which was kept outside and slept in one of the farm's barns, while the second one, the little one who caused the outrage, was inside of the property. The nature of this conversation was pretty straightforward because, for me, It's always seemed likely that the killer ambushed the family while they were in bed, with my personal theory having always been that Neville and June were in bed at the time the crime began. But the situation with the dog has always thrown a spanner in the works. After all, 
Little dogs are known to bark. And from what I can tell from my research, Crispy, the little one, was no different. If there had been an intruder of any kind, surely Crispy would have awoken the family, and the scene might have been remarkably different from that of which it was. Unless, of course, the dog knew the person and was comfortable enough with their presence. For the campaign team, this further supports the theory that Sheila committed the crimes. After all, wouldn't the dog have been disturbed if Jeremy had walked into the property? And so, it further adds to the suggestion that the only people within the property were those who were supposed to be there that evening. At this point, I asked a question about something that had eluded my research. And that is the suggestion from a contemporary newspaper report that someone had actually heard a gunshot on the night of the murders. This anomaly is not mentioned anywhere else. So I wanted to know what the campaign team knew about it. We've got one witness statement from somebody who lived in the farm cottages that said at 10 o'clock at night, he thought he heard a gunshot. Well, we know Neville was still bringing the harvest in at 10 o'clock at night. We know that June and Sheila were on the phone to Pamela at 10 o'clock at night. It had nothing to do with White House Farm if they heard a gunshot. Uh, we've, no, we've not had any statements. There's nothing in the disclosed material at all to say that anybody heard any shots. A number of years ago, Jeremy Bamber was granted permission to undertake a polygraph test, something that he passed. One of the later episodes of this series is an interview with that polygraph expert, Terry Mullins, the same person who conducted Bamba's test. Uh, He fought for 10 years to be able to have the lie detector test before he got permission to have it. And uh, Terry Mullins, who conducted the lie detector test, is impartial, you know, he was just approached. And uh, he said categorically, Jeremy did not murder his family. And, and the guy who did it also did the lie detector. Is it Adrian Prout? The, the guy who, the guy who killed his wife and always claimed he was innocent. He also did a lie detector test on him, which Prout failed appallingly and subsequently confessed. So he, he's not somebody who was predisposed to believing Jeremy or you know, had a bias in favour of people who claimed they were innocent. He was a, a yeah. They're more, they're more than an investigative tool, but people are sent to jail in the UK on the basis of lie detector tests because if you're a sex offender, you have to go through periodic reviews of your behaviour after release. And if you fail a lie detector test as part of that process, your licence is revoked, so you go back to jail. So people are sent to jail purely on the basis of lie detector tests in this country. But why would you why would you insist on having one and push for it? And you know, it it's it's not something he did half-heartedly. It's like he absolutely pushed, I want a lie detector test. He had to make application after application after application. And eventually they got that sick of me making the applications. It was like, just do it then. You know? And he does it. And and so he knows he's innocent. We know he's innocent because the evidence shows he's innocent. And a lot of people say to me, some, you know, in, in times past, well, what if he ever turned around to you and said, ah, you know, really, I, I did it. You know, I said, well, <laughs> prove it to me because the evidence says you're innocent. You know, and that will never happen. Jeremy will, he, he is innocent. 
we believe in his innocence, the evidence proves he's innocent. And and to be honest, we do get and he gets a lot of negativity, especially like from the medium and from from some people. But you know, you fight for what you believe in and you fight for the truth. And we will always fight for the truth because we know what the truth is. You know, Jeremy knows what the truth is. And so we will fight and we will continue to fight until the courts of the land also see that truth and let Jeremy out. To end the interview, I asked if there was anything in particular that the campaign team wanted sympathetic listeners to do. Any particular action that they wanted you to take. Well, the, f- the first thing we'd like them to do is is to look at the evidence and you know come to their own conclusion. You know, don't accept anything we're saying or the prosecution is saying. Look at the evidence, and if they do come to the same conclusion as we do, which we're sure they would, having looked at all the evidence, then talk to their friends. You know, spread the word that you know that this is a flaw in the system, both in Jeremy's case personally and in the wider disclosure area as well, and help to make a better justice system that, you know, finds the guilty and convicts them and doesn't (laughs) convict and imprison innocent people. They say that they now have reams and reams of evidence to support their campaign and that we, as the public, have seen just the tip of the iceberg. At the time of both the interview and the episode, the result of the latest CCRC submission is still unknown. But either way, the Jeremy Bamber Innocence Campaign will continue the fight. I think a lot of the problem is on documentaries that have, or dramas, or sometimes authors, they jump to conclusions. So they read something and think, oh, right, well, that means that. So we don't do that. We don't speculate. We work off cold, hard evidence. And, you know, if if something says something, so one document won't do for us. So it's like the one shot. You know, when I've discovered one police officer, I'm like, yeah, well, okay, that's one. By the time you get to five, who are all saying the same thing, it's like, wait a minute now, there's something not right here. And then you get, I mean, we do have more evidence than what we disclose to the public, but we can't disclose that additional evidence about the one shot yet. Um, But we will do, and it's in the submissions. But in total, there was like eight people who know that Sheila was shot once. They know, you know, and it's all, all documented. We don't speculate. So like authors at the end of their book where they go, oh, we'll tell you what happened and, you know, and we'll have, and, and they completely invent what they believe happened. Fine, if you support that with the evidence. But just to, we could speculate, you know, we could say, oh, this happened and that happened and at this time and that time. We can't do that because we we deal in facts and it's the facts that will get Jeremy's to the Court of Appeal and it's the facts that will win the appeal, not us saying, oh, but I think, you know, because I think doesn't count. So we don't speculate. At a court, the, ju- the jury are told, aren't they, if you believe beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, there isn't just a reasonable doubt that Jeremy's innocent. There's absolutely categorical proof that Jeremy is innocent. You know, and there is no doubt at all. So, you know, it's always like interested me if the jury could hear the evidence that they didn't get privileged to hear at the court. You know, would they still reach that decision? 
no, that's a chance. It wouldn't have even gone to trial. Maybe you found the campaign's narrative compelling. Maybe you disagree completely. Or maybe you, like me, are more confused by their version of events than you ever were before. Fear not. Most of this information will be reconsidered in a lot more detail. I am fully prepared for the likely criticism that this episode will garner from certain groups. And I expect some very, very specific tweets regarding my choice to now come out against Bamber. But if you think I'm making any sort of sense, maybe you can help counterbalance any of that negativity. Let me know what you think of this episode and perhaps consider leaving a review. (laughs) 